Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavour. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. There is a story for everyone here, because every story matters. Welcome everyone to the Storybooks. This is the place to be if you are a lover of stories, learning new and interesting things, and if you want to grow abundantly. My name is Jay Phantom, and I believe it's my purpose to help you realize your worth and become the greatest and best version of you possible. I am grateful that you're here today. Now let's journey into the Storybooks together and hear more about whose story will be unboxed today. Our careers are a series of choices, some of which feel scary and make or break you. What do you do when you become paralyzed by fear and find yourself unable to act? And what happens if you make a move that doesn't work out the way you'd hoped it to? Well, my next guest is none other than Sukinda Singh Cassidy. Now, for those of you that don't recognize her name, she is honestly a business icon. She has uh, led, she's a leading figure, I guess you could say, in Silicon Valley with 25 years of experience as a technology CEO, entrepreneur, board member, and investor. She has helped scale global companies, including Google, Amazon, and StubHub. So she worked for Google and Amazon and was responsible for Uh, skyrocketing both Google and Amazon in the market. She has advised numerous other uh, companies, including TripAdvisor, Ericsson, Sitch, Fix, and Twitter, and has also built several companies of her own, including Yodley and The Broadlist. For all her work, Sikinda has been uh, profiled by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Fortune, Forbes, Fast Company, Vanity Fair, and many, many more. And Sukinda has a new book out that I know is going to absolutely go wild. It is called Choose Possibility, Take Risks and Thrive Even When You Fail. And I think you guys are going to love this conversation between Sukinda and I. I honestly love this subject matter, especially when it comes to taking risks and failing because I don't know if you know, but it was a massive risk and it still is a massive risk for me to do this show. So I had an absolute blast speaking with Sukinda. You can go and get a copy of a book now, wherever books are sold, I guarantee you're going to love reading the book if you're a massive reader like myself. So 
If you want to support Sukinda, please uh, go and get a copy of that her, her book. All links are in the show notes below. But you got you guys know what to do. Please share this one around to all your friends and family if this one touches you in some way, shape, or form. And also don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review over on Apple Podcasts. Goes a huge way in building this wonderful community of the Storybox. All right, my friends, you know what time it is. It is time to journey with me into the Storybox as we choose the possible because today we're going to listen learn and grow and hear the amazing story from none other than Sukinda Singh Cassidy thank you so much for having me I'm excited to chat I'm very excited to have you here I was just telling you before that the subject matter of your book is something that I'm passionate about spreading awareness on and I was like also when I got the copy I started flicking through it and the first thing I usually do is check the chapter titles and see, yeah. hey, which one do I want to go to first and and see and um, yeah, dive into. So there's quite a few of them that I actually got very interested in because there's, there's like the very, they hit you <laughs> straight away. Yeah. Um, but the first question that I sort of want to start off this conversation with, and it's actually one of your chapter titles. Um, yeah. It's you say not success, I believe it is. Am I getting that not? Yes, to to succeed, don't focus on success. Exactly. So my question to you is, what does success look like for you? Um, Well, uh, thank you for first of all, thanks for asking the question, and uh, and I think there are a couple of things. So first of all, let's just agree that for success for many people, and this is one of the things about making any choice, success is multifaceted, and this is sort of. Part of the problem is people think about success as one thing, right? We're trained to think about a risk has a single reward. Mm-hmm. And part of the place I start people off is like, I'm pretty sure that when you're aiming for something, you don't have one reward in mind, but you have multiple rewards in mind. You know, uh, case in point, I left Google to become a CEO, right? And so I said, I want to be a CEO. But when you unpack it, I wanted to be a CEO. I wanted to create increase the financial wealth for my family, I went back to a startup thinking that I would have disproportionate wealth opportunity with more risk. Um, And by the way, I was three months pregnant when I left. So I also wanted to find something where, you know, with my second child, actually my second child organically, my third child, because I had a stepson. Um, And so I wanted to also find something that would suit my family. So, okay, there were three different choices I was making in that one choice. So I'll say to people, if you want to succeed, you know, you need to unpack like all the reasons you're taking a risk and to name them and to size them and obviously to stack rank them. So that's that's really piece one. Like there's never just one reward you're seeking. It's multifaceted, which comes to the second point, which I think you're asking about. I sort of said to succeed, don't focus on success. We tend to think that this relationship between the risk we take and the reward we're seeking is like really linear, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not because I could point you to any number of choices I've made in my career where you would say, I would say, okay, I thought I was taking a singular risk or making a single decision. In fact, I was making three in there. I just named three decisions I was like making and choosing to leave Google or three goals. And when you map them out, they all, the, the answer plays out over different timeframes. So if I, if you say focus on success, I'm like, okay, well, the problem is success is often multiple choices away, multiple choices. And it's not going to look like one for one. It's not that you take a risk and you're going to get the answer like a scorecard, like we're trained to think in school. In fact, what happens is it unfolds over many choices. So that's why I would say, if you want to succeed, it's hard to just focus on success. What you have to do is focus on what are your goals and how do you create impact in every one of those areas and understand it's going to unfold over a much different and longer time frame than you think. 
Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean the rewards aren't there. They just not be, may not be nearly as linear as you imagine when you start or one-to-one. Mm, exactly. And for someone that doesn't feel like they're, they have many choices or options available to them, especially in the business field, or they kind of feel like they're stuck in mm-hmm. their current position, What is it still the same for them? Like, do you still encourage them to look at all the so-called possibilities around them or how would you navigate that situation? Well, it's interesting. I think you're hitting one of the key constructs when we have when we take a risk. We tend to believe there's only one choice. Mm-hmm. And I always say to people, like, what if I told you not to take risks to achieve an ambition, but first to take a risk to discover what's possible? Mm-hmm. So you um, you may well know this. I, I grew up in sales. Sales is a classic uh, path where you don't actually, you may take a risk to achieve an ambition, like I want to become wealthy by earning a big commission. But before that, in sales, you repeatedly take risks just to build a pipeline of opportunity, right? And you know that like in the case of sales, nine out of 10 won't work out, but you only, but you have to go discover what's possible. When kids apply to schools here in the US, they have like, they have a multifaceted process where they apply to 30 schools in order to get one. So I would say to people, like before you presume that you only have one choice available, take a little risks to learn and discover what's possible. And often when we push ourselves to do that, to come up with three options, you're taking little risks with your time and not presuming there's no answer or only one answer. So to answer your question, I, to that person, I would say, well, here's what I'd ask you to do. Take a little risk, do a little risk taking for discovery. You think there's no way for you to get into business? Well, challenge yourself to go have three informational interviews. You know, like that's one way where I can say you might be just be able to discover that something you think is impossible is possible. Or if you say, I want to be a CEO and you're miles away from that, you may say, okay, well, what are three paths I could take? today that would get me in motion to, you know, discover what it's like to eat, forget being a CEO, even like manage two functions. And mm-hmm. I'd say, okay, you probably could do that at your current job. You probably could go ask for more responsibility. You could go work for a different part of the company, or you could make a job switch. Mm-hmm. But like, we often tend to think that it's one choice in binary. And I always say to people, take a little risk to discover what's possible before you even take a risk to make one choice. Does that make sense? It makes total sense. And I was going to ask you as well, because with taking a risk, it often associates itself with fear, fear of the unknown, not being able to see, I guess, what's in front of you. Uh, And that sort of stops people from actually taking the step forward to do the actual risk. So, and, and oftentimes this is what I used to do as well. I used to overthink the scenario Mm -hmm. and I used to pinpoint every single little thing that could go wrong. And mm-hmm. I used to try and create a plan around trying to fix that thing that would go wrong, even though I had no control over it. <laughs> so yeah. that kind of stopped me from actually achieving the thing that I wanted to achieve. So yeah. then I got stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, so with someone that says to you, Sikinda, I am afraid to take a risk, whether it be a big one or even a small one. How would we navigate that road? (laughs) It's interesting because, you know, you went somewhere with your answer that I I actually thought you were going a different place. So let's pick up on what you did. Right. So first of all, I will say to people, if you want to know if you're going to get into action on something big or small, there's this risk taking equation that rules all of us. And it goes something like this. Um, FOMO, we all know that fear of missing out is like this positive fear we have, right? Like you're visualizing some new possibility. And so you want to get your FOMO rising. Everybody knows that, like visualize, visualize, visualize all the great things that could happen. Okay. 
But the other fear we face is fear of failure. You just identified it. So if you have fear of failure, right, you think, well, what happens if something goes wrong? Mm -hmm. So the risk-taking equation I have in my head is if my FOMO is greater than my fear of failure, I'm going to act. And if my fear of failure is greater than my FOMO, I'm not going to act, right? Like it's just literally a mathematical equation. So most people would say, well, just ramp your FOMO. Think about all the positive things that could happen. And while that is somewhat helpful, it doesn't tackle this issue you're talking about. Like you could have big FOMO, but if your fear of failure is bigger, you're actually just not going to move. It doesn't matter how big your FOMO is, right? It's that your fear of failure is, is paralyzing you. So you identified something that I actually think can be a positive practice if you just add one more piece to what you said. Mm. So for me, if you're if you're paralyzed by what could go wrong, instead of looking at it and getting to the precipice and stopping, I would encourage you to embrace that fear put a name and a size to it, but a name and a size to it can only be placed when you imagine what happened if that happens if that fear actualizes. So let me give you an example. Like you fear that, you know, you're going to start a podcast and you're going to totally embarrass yourself. Okay. Well, then you say, okay, I would say to you, well, what, what would happen after that? So you embarrassed yourself. What would you do next? And you might say, well, I would work doubly hard on the next episode and get somebody super smart to make me look smarter. Okay. That's option one. Then I would say, keep thinking through what are the four or five choices you would make after a failed choice, after a failed choice. And if you discover that there are many, chances are the risk you're taking is actually quite small, right? By the way, that also forces you to say, like, what is what's holding you back here? Is it ego risk, which is actually naming the risk? Is it financial risk? It's probably not financial risk. If you fail once and have a crappy podcast, like, you're not financially ruined. Like, you just, right, you have many more at bats. So I'll say to people, like, look through your fear and name the choices after the choice and look at how many they are. Because often what that does for us is it helps us imagine what a recovery would look like. And the minute a recovery has five or six elements to it, you know, you actually, I think, can shrink your fear fear of failure. So I actually don't discount the idea of facing your fears. I think the question is, don't just stop at the fear and what happens. I'm always like, name the choice after the choice. I want you to name the choice after the choice and how many choices you have. And if you have multiple choices after something fails, I bet you that risk is small. That's when, you know, and, and maybe that's what gets you into action. So um, so interestingly, well, on small, on small actions, you can pretty quickly name your fears and your choices after the choice. And it doesn't take much to get an emotion. Mm. On bigger, you know, on bigger questions, you might need to put pen to paper and literally walk them through and, you know, name what, you, what you're afraid of. But I think what most people will find when they do that exercise is what Jeff Bezos originally wrote in one of his shareholder letters to as he went public, which is that he says Amazon's able to act quickly because most decisions that they make and people make it back are what's called two-way doors. You go through and if it doesn't work out, you come back. Like, you know, like there's no ruinous thing happening, right? Or there are multiple more doors that open. And very, very few choices in our life are one-way doors. Very few. Um, so that's what I that's what I usually say to people. There are so many avenues that I could go down at the moment. <laughs> um, so I want to sort of give the audience some context around your backstory before we sure. go any further. So going back, you mentioned that you worked for Google. I also mentioned in the intro that you worked for Amazon. Now yeah. you were responsible for bringing Google to Asia and, and all these other great places, which is honestly absolutely insane. So mm -hmm. can you share with me from the very beginning of your career, did you ever pitch yourself working for Google or Amazon or doing any of these, these companies? Um, I don't think I did. And this is sort of what I mean about the power of little risks and big risks. So, you know, we often tend to think that um, all the power is in big risk taking, right? 
I can tell you that I go joined Google at a thousand people. And, uh, even though that's small compared to what it is today, the company was profitable. It was about, you know, it, was, it went public within a year of my joining. We, you and I would not call that a big risk, right? It was a little risk that led to a big reward. But let's back up one before Google and say, okay, but what if I were to tell you I only got the opportunity at Google because I, you know, joined a startup. I left Amazon. I was at a startup that sold to Amazon. Awesome. I should quit Amazon with lots of stock options left on the table and took a relatively big risk to join four or five engineering founders. And we built a company called Yodely, which was one of the early FinTech pioneers. And I spent five years at Yodely. And by the way, Yodely didn't go public till 10 years after I left. So I spent about five years as a business founder. We raised capital, established the business model, you know, got big banks to use this and what have you. But Yodely was probably about 15, $20 million in revenue by the time I left, which by internet standards is not that large. Um, Now I will tell you that you know, Yodely was a big risk. And if I were to look back and tell you how much money I made at Yodely, the number would be astonishingly small. I always say it to people, people think, well, gosh, Sukinder, you were a part of a company that went public, right? Okay, so I took a big risk. Mm-hmm. Let's, keep in mind, I left Amazon stock options on the table in 1999. You can just guess what that was probably worth. But I really wanted to be a startup entrepreneur and I would never regret the decision on Yodely. Yodely established my uh, reputation as an innovator, it showed what I could do. I was 29 years old and I got to be a C, you know, a SVP. Um, I met all of the major venture capitalists in the Valley. I became known as like a biz dev rock star, right? And so all those things happened. In total, Yodely made me over the course of 15 years, $300,000 pre-tax. No offense, it's actually not a lot of money. If you like dial back for being a founder of an internet company, that's like $10,000 post-tax mm-hmm. every year. But Yodely established my reputation. The only reason Google called me for that role, which was a relatively small risk that, you know, paid out big in my career and actually paid out big financially, was because the founders of of Google shared investors with Yodely. They knew my work at Yodely. Yodely and Google shared uh, one angel investor who then, you know, as I was thinking about leaving Yodely, sort of called up the guys at Google and said, hey, you know, Sikinder's thinking about leaving. Like, you really ought to have a conversation with her. Um, about what's possible. So I only got the job at Google because I I took a massive risk once before. And that massive risk did not pay out. If you looked at Yodely as like financially, Moon Yodely was not a big payout, but it set me up to move to Google, right? And that's only possible because I took the risk at Yodely. So my point overall is, you know, I didn't imagine I'd end up at Google. I didn't imagine I'd end up at Amazon. I joined a startup that got sold to Amazon, right? By the way, I've had two startups that one of which is still going and one of which had a very small outcome. I mean, these are like chance encounters, but I will tell you the thing in common with Amazon and Google and maybe all my choices before. Everywhere I went in my career that I thrived, the choice I made was about the who, not the what. I always say this. I was like, so you're like, well, how did you end up at Amazon and Google at just the right time or, you know, what have you? Everywhere I found fit, it was because I prioritized working with really smart people. It almost didn't matter the subject matter. You know, I was in fintech. I mean, what do I know about fintech? You know, I was like, you know, I was like all of these places I went at Google, I was in advertising sales. And then I was running a region of the world that I knew nothing about. But I always prioritized at the places I succeeded, the who over the what. Mm-hmm. And the couple times that I would say things didn't go so well for me in terms of taking a risk, it wasn't because the company failed or succeeded. It's because the dynamics of the people I put myself, you know, in the boat with were not particularly great. Mm-hmm. So 
Did I imagine myself at both those places? No. Do I think that part of what led me to where I ended up at both Amazon and Google was prioritizing working with really amazing people in two different startup opportunities that then unfolded to more opportunity directly or indirectly. One was as, you know, uh, one was an acquisition by Amazon. The other was, as I said, I left Yobly and it's just because I shared a network of uh, investors with whom I'd done great work that they referred me to the Google opportunity. I have to totally agree with you about the who, because I have realized doing this, it's not really about what's, it's always about the connections that you make, the people mm-hmm. that you associate yourself with, they're going to help you far more than mere knowledge is. Because mm-hmm. if you are feeling stuck or anything like that, you can go to somebody that you love and trust and respect and they can help you out. Like even if it's just venting your emotions, whatever it is. So, but what I'm interested in is you mentioned that you associated yourself with smart people. Did mm-hmm. you find that your own education helped you when it came to taking risks in business or was it more the people that you associated with, the smart people that actually helped you taking risks? Yeah, it's, it's uh, well, I think you're, I think there are a few questions in there. So I'll come back to that. Um, let me come back to them. No, 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 it's good. It's good. So I'm just organizing my thoughts. So first and foremost, I actually say to people, if you want to be a calculated risk taker, prioritize the who over the what. So in any choice you're making, don't just evaluate like the what. People tell you like, follow your passion, take a big choice over like, you know, something that you know deeply well. I'm like, yes, but almost a lot of your success in any endeavor, or if it leads to subsequent successes, is about who you put yourself in the boat with. You know, there are many factors that go into success. So, so first and foremost, I would say to people, when you're calculating which risk to take, overweight the who, you know, it counts in some ways more than the what, even the common wisdom is just follow your passion. So that's one point. To answer your question, like, did I learn my risk-taking by associating myself with smart people or did I have it anyway? I would say I learned risk-taking two ways. Number one, the very first person I associated myself with was my father, who was a doctor and ran a medical practice with my mom, but he loved running a small business. He loved it. So to answer your question, people sometimes say entrepreneurs are born in families. And I would say my father had us literally working on his tax returns by the time I was seven or eight. And people are like, well, what's glamorous about working on a tax return and doing your dad's books? And the answer is absolutely nothing. But it did train me to understand that running a small business was not, or business of any kind, being an entrepreneur was not like a mystery. It was as tactical as literally looking at a ledger and writing your expenses and your, you know, and your revenues down. Like that is the most granular version of, you know, business building that there is. And so my dad just showed me that entrepreneurship was very accessible I never thought about it as this mysterious thing. And because he loved being in control of his own destiny early on, he was like, work for yourself. And I went away to college and I wanted to be a big corporate executive. But by the time I was in my mid-20s and had a little bit of corporate success, I'd been an investment banker. I'd worked for B Sky B, which is a news core division. I was like, I want to be an entrepreneur. And I didn't know what that meant, but I moved to Silicon Valley. So I would say I give my dad a lot of credit. That is the who, who first, you know, um, showed me that like possibility is possible. That's what I would say. Um, and then I would say, The other contributing factor, and I say this a lot, is, you know, early on, I got a, you know, I opened myself up to a career in sales, right? I was, I sold hotel space in college. My very first job was at a receptionist at a local sales franchise. You know, I sold clothes in college. 
So early on, I had this, I had a, very, a lot of exposure to micro risk, by the way, not just from my dad, right? Nobody says a, me, a medical practice is particularly risky, but he took little risks, you know, and, and I took little risks just in selling. So I think this idea of risk-taking as a muscle really developed because I just saw it in action and then I did it. And I think that most people think that risk has to be big to take it. And I would just say I did, I had a lot of little risk taking early in my career um, Mm -hmm. that I think trained me to think about like risk and increments. And -hmm. I think that's a really important lesson. Absolutely. I can relate to you on a number of levels with that response. Mm -hmm. The first is uh, my grandfather taught me about running small business and even my Mm -hmm. uncle as well, because both of them ran small businesses. My uncle still runs his business at the moment, which mm-hmm. is pretty, pretty awesome. So whenever, I, and I was still quite young when my grandfather passed, sadly, but he would, I would always have these conversations with him and he would mm-hmm. always give me like these little life lessons that I have taken into my business at the moment that has always helped me. Never, mm-hmm. never once have I questioned my grandfather's advice because it's always been like, Hold on. Spot on. Exactly. So, I mean, and especially when it comes to me taking a risk and going out there and asking someone for for help. And Mm -hmm. if it's receiving rejection, I always go back to my grandfather's advice. Number one, if you don't ask, you don't get, don't be afraid to ask. Second Mm -hmm. is don't procrastinate. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Oftentimes what happens with people when they want to take a risk is they procrastinate it. And mm-hmm. they just, like, once again, I was saying before, they just churn yeah, over churn, all the churn, negative. Churn. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I love that response. So moving, well, how long were you at Google for? I was at Google for six years. So I joined in 2003, left in 2009, and uh, was lucky enough to build a number of businesses when I was there. But as to your point, most, the biggest business I built was our international business. Wow. And what, what makes you passionate today even about running your own startups or your own businesses? Well, I would say to people, um, first of all, I don't know about you, but I have half my brain is wired like an executive. So, you know, I, I enjoy leading. I enjoy, you know, getting a group of people to take a hill. Um, but the other part of my brain is wired creatively, you know, and a lot of business is also quite creative, particularly starting or growing businesses. Like every day there's a new problem to figure out. And it requires creative problem solving. And some of that creativity is really fun. Like, you know, user design, if you have an online product or, you know, somebody like me loves fashion. So I love like, you know, I, I, I even love like I'm on the board of Urban Outfitters. I love that we touch product that I can relate to. Um, but I think there's a very creative aspect to business building that I, that absolutely stimulates like my mind and in some cases my heart. Um, and then the other half of my mind is all wired for like, how do you get people to take a hill and feel really good about it and, and see what they're capable of. And so I guess I love, I love running businesses because you get to do both. Mm. Speaking about leadership and creativity and Mm -hmm. then taking risks, do you believe that you need, in order to be a good leader, you need to be great at creative risk-taking, if that makes sense? Yeah. uh, First of all, I think that to be a good leader, I think you need to be good at two things. So number one, do you need to practice risk-taking? Absolutely. Because I can't think of a single business right now, even an old school business that's not being disrupted and that doesn't need to change and morph in advance. So if you can't figure out how to be a risk-taker in your own career, it's unlikely, right? You can steer a ship where you have to learn to pivot every day. Now, the good news about 
digital companies is generally they've been raised with a mindset that the product is continually evolving and pivoting. Do you know what I mean? So the idea of the pivot is and pivoting and pivoting and pivoting is not is very native to digital companies. So I think it's a little harder for other companies, but it, but it's native to that. So, that's, so as a leader, you absolutely need to have, have have to because I can't think of a business that is not being disrupted today. Look, look at what COVID just did to every freaking industry, digital or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and the point is, you know, if you don't take risk, risk, risk will find you anyway. Competitive risk, societal risk, pandemic-induced risk, like it's coming whether you want it to or not, right? So even if you think you're in a state business, it's still coming. Mm. Um, that's piece one. Piece two is I think your job as a leader is to create an environment in which other people take risks. Because I can tell you, and you probably know this, you're a founder. Um, I'm a founder as well, right? You know what you wish as a founder? You wish everybody in your company woke up every day willing to make the same, you know, saw the same thing you do, you know, and drove as hard as you did. And it's not, I don't think that any of our teams lack ambition, not at all. I think sometimes they think they lack opportunity. They lack the safety. They lack the permission to show up at work and take little risks, right? And and realize and not be scolded for it. So I think as much as we all say, oh gosh, I want to create an environment in which people take risk. I'm like, okay, well, creating an environment in which people take risk is as important as being a risk taker. Because you don't scale yourself if you can't get other people in your organization to also feel comfortable to, you know, take little bets. And why is it important to risk? What's so obvious? Like, you know, I don't mean it obvious in a patronizing way. I'm just like obvious in a simple way, which is like, if people take little risks, they learn faster. If they learn faster, they adapt faster. If they adapt faster, they can pivot whatever part of the business they're in 1% or 360 degrees, 1% at a time. We don't know what adjustments needed. But you can't be adjusting if you're not learning. You can't be learning if you're not taking risks, right? So risks can be micro risks. It's not about the size. It's about the frequency. Absolutely. I totally agree with you on that. Um, for you, Sukinda, in your life, not in your, not in the business sense, what has been the greatest risk that you've taken with your family? It's a good question. So first of all, for you can probably tell already. So for somebody like me, who I am and what I do are so wired together that I find it hard to disassociate a personal risk I've taken that didn't have professional implications or professional risk that didn't have personal implications. Um, but let me try and hit on, you know, maybe, I, it, and by the way, I say this to everybody, if you think that I, as I described my problems, they're not privileged problems, I, it would be a complete joke because I've grown up in a securely middle-class family, you know, and although I've taken entrepreneurial risk, I've taken it in Silicon Valley where people pay for you to start companies, you know, give you venture capital. So like, you have to put it all in perspective. Does that make sense? I find it embarrassing if you don't put it in perspective. So I've had security to take risk. That's sort of my point. You know, I never had to sell my home and mortgage something in order to put food on the table. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, having said all that, what's the biggest personal risk I've taken? Um, I would say maybe the one one of the ones with biggest implications is uh, at least twice in my life, I've made choices professionally that would have had very big implications for my family. The first was I was married a year and Google wanted me to take over international. And my husband was literally like, uh, like, what? Like, I will, like, I'm not even sure we should have children. And for somebody like me who wanted to have several children in my lifetime to hear my husband say to me, like, like, I don't, I never see you. Like, how are we even going to have children? Like that was, so then that was a major negotiation at work and at home. When I say it's major, I mean, at Google, I said, I want to have children. I don't know how to make this job work. And so I want you to pay literally to take my nanny and my newborn around the world with me. 
And they said, yes, at home, I said, Simon, like, uh, you know, like, this is the way we're going to make it work. Like, you know, I not only want to have children, I have one child, I want to have lots of children, but like, okay, what do we need to make it work? And we literally had a whole negotiation about what need to happen. But like, my husband wasn't particularly happy with this idea that I want to have a family, yet I'm committing to this job that requires me to be away 90% of the time. Like, you know, so that's one example. And then um, as I left Google, I was pregnant with my third child. And, um, but a year before that, my husband's like, I don't know that I want to have a third child because once again, you're going to be off like traveling and you know, taking on more and more responsibility. And he's like, like, what does this mean for me and for us? And we probably negotiated for a year over like this idea of whether we should have a third child and what would make it work. Cause I was like, you're right. I have massive career ambitions. And this would also be one of the biggest regrets of my life is to not have a bigger family. And of course he wanted one, but he recognized the implications on him and our family. So I would say twice I've had really, really big conversations with my family about what my work ambition, you know, means for our family in terms of sacrifice. And then I've had to go to work and negotiate, you know, to make it as better, as best as it can be. (laughs) And also at home to say, what do you need for this to work? Mm -hmm. Um, So I would call those not big risks from a financial perspective, but from a happiness perspective. And, you know, nobody wants to wake up and feel like, you know, and this is the, the, this is why everything's a risk, right? There's no perfect choice. Like you choose a professional ambition and you risk your personal and family's happiness. You choose, you know, something personal and you risk maybe your life's ambition about something professionally. Mm. So it's never perfect. Um, and maybe I could come up with a bigger one probably, but a lot of them are big professional risks, like how to manage COVID. That was like the biggest professional risk I ever faced, mm. undoubtedly. Do you regret any of those decisions that you ended up making? In those risks? In those moments, not those moments, because I think those were so, not those two. I mean, I regret other professional decisions. Um, I twice went to startups where my value fit, my values alignment was uh, not great. Those are the two jobs in my 25-year career where I left within six months. In one, I was the CEO and I you know, and I was out of a job in six months. Like nobody thinks that's going to happen. And by the way, that was directly after I left Google. So, you know, I went from massive success to being out of a job, my first CEO job in six months. Wow. And the startup, by the way, went on to be very successful. And, but, but my values fit with the founder was just completely in hindsight missing. Mm. So what would you so say? Yeah, go ahead. So what would you say in the course of your life? This might be a big question. Yeah to answer because we are on the, on the topic of risks, failure, rewards, thriving, all that stuff. What would you say has been the biggest failure in your life Mm -hmm. that ended up helping you thrive and get to the point where you are today? Is there a story? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a big story there and let's go back to that example. So, um, uh, Uh, I left Google. I want to be a startup CEO again. I knew I was never going to be the CEO of Google, by the way, and a business person, you know, it would always be a product and engineering led company. And in fact, Sundar, who runs the company today, came from product and engineering and, you know, he's wonderful. So like many of my peers, I left Google in 2009. And unlike them, they went to bigger companies. I I became a startup CEO again, and I wanted to be in e-commerce. 
because I thought it was going to be a booming area of the internet. This is circa 2009, where all of commerce is still feeling pretty utilitarian. You know what I mean? It's all about price. It's all, it, it all comes in a brand box. There's no inspiration in commerce, but I can see all these new companies arising in commerce. Um, and as I said, I was three months pregnant. So I did all my diligence. I spent nine months looking at everything in e-commerce. A company called Polyware had tried to court me three different times to join them as CEO. I knew the investors, I knew the founders. Um, I had done the diligence. And so uh, uh, in that case, I basically, so as I noted, I went to Polyvore, uh, fully having studied the marketplace, made the decision to be a startup CEO. This was the company because I studied them deeply. They'd come calling. I knew everyone. I spent time with the founder. All that's true, right? So I take the most calculated risk I can. Mm -hmm. And as I said, within six months, it was very clear the founder wanted to be CEO again. Uh, the founder and I, I think had different ways that we communicated and thought about values in building a company. And he basically said to the board, you need to choose. And the board chose him, right. uh, despite my resume, despite my accomplishments, but, but that's the way it goes, right? It's, it's risk. Like it's called risk for a reason. I'll say this. It doesn't mean that it always works out the way you want. And I was devastated because I was like, this is embarrassing. I just left one of the company, you know, one of the best purchases at one of the most well-respected companies in the world to go run a 10 person startup only to lose to the founder. Like, just think about that. I left 2000 people in a $2 billion PL. And like, I lost, I lost space. I lost the job, all of that stuff. Um, so, so you would look at that and say it's a failure. And it is like, I still, you know, it's still not something I'm happy with, but then let's play it forward. Um, that marked my entry into e-commerce. I was right about entering the e-commerce landscape at that point in time. I was right that it was going to boom. At Polyvore, my intern for the summer was a woman named Katrina Lake. She went on to become the founder of Stitch Fix and I became its first investor. Okay, that, that was positive. Um, my pivot into e-commerce led me to start a second company called Joyous in video commerce that I ran for seven years. And even though video commerce was very early back then, it's now booming, you know, we sold it for a small sum. But in those seven years, I became a very well-studied e-commerce entrepreneur. I joined the board of J. Crew at first, then I joined the board of TripAdvisor, oh, and then I was invited to join the board at Urban Outfitters. Okay, those are all best-in-class companies at commerce and media um, and, you know, pure lifestyle commerce. I became an investor. Besides Stitch Fix, I became an investor in multiple e-commerce companies using my day knowledge as an entrepreneur to become an investor at night. Mm -hmm. And seven years later, when I ultimately decided after selling Joyous that I wanted to go back to scale, I was invited to run one of the biggest e-commerce brands in the United States, StubHub. And I ran that business for the last two years. It's a global ticketing marketplace and we just sold it for $4 billion. And uh, and I ran a $5 billion P&L. So, okay. So now in hindsight, does my move out of Google into Polyvore look like success or failure? I would say decision to become a CEO. Yeah, I ultimately got to run a big brand as a CEO in e-commerce and delight people. Wasn't the brand I anticipated, but I got there. <laughs> you know, did I have financial wins along the way? Absolutely. Did pivoting into e-commerce make sense? Absolutely. So, right, but they all played out over different timeframes. I can tell you six months after I left Google and a year after I left Google, I, I could barely talk about my job experience without crying. Mm -hmm. Um, so you tell me, is that a success or failure? In hindsight, I made three different decisions, not just one, two of those three decisions proved to be pretty positive. One was an abject failure. Um, but that's okay because it led to all of these other things. Uh, so that's what I mean.
That's an amazing story. <laughs> and is this is this all in your book, Choose Possibility? Well, that's just one chapter. So you've got to read Whoa. the rest of it for the rest of the story. But that's uh that's a that's one of the meteor chapters. I mean, I could speak to you for ages. I've got so many questions, but I just realized the time. So I do want to be mm-hmm. respectful of it. I have two final questions that are very quick, if you don't mind. So your your new book, Choose Possibility, is out the 12th of August. People can go and get a copy. 17th. 17th. My bad. 17th yeah, of August. People can go and get a copy, but they can pre-order it now. So yes. go and get a copy. Uh, it's Choose Possibility the website, I believe, is that correct? It is. And even ahead of that, you can also take a risk quiz uh, and like figure out your own natural risk-taking style because we all kind of move through the world with a natural style and regardless of your style. Um, hopefully the website and the book can help you think about, you know, how you actually choose possibility, not just talk about it, but do it, which is the most important part. So my second last question to you is if I was to pick up a copy of your book right now, which I do have, and yes. turn to any page or chapter in the book that I'm going to get the most out of, that I'm going to be challenged, you name it. What yeah. particular chapter or page would you recommend that I turn to first? Uh, I, I think you would turn to the chapter called uh, The Myth of the Single Choice mm-hmm. um, and forget the hero's journey. It's in the very beginning. But okay. Forget the hero's journey and you and reorient yourself to what risk is and isn't. That's I'm, right, I'm writing that down now. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... My final question for you, Sukinda, this is my all-time favorite question I ask everyone at the end. It's a hypothetical one, but I want you to imagine with me for a moment that you've been able to reach the age of 100. All your friends and your family have decided to put together a film for you of everything you've ever said and everything you've ever done. Don't ask me how in the world they got it all. We'll call it magic for sake of argument. But they've been able to get it and show it to you on your 100th birthday. What do you want that film to say and to show about your life? Oh, wow. That is a, that's a doozy of a question. Um, (laughs) I would hope that everybody in that room would say, you know, um, I knew it was possible. And Sukinder helped me realize a little bit more of what's possible in my own life. Perfect send off message. Sukinder Singh Cassidy, thank you so much for your time today. Your, your amazing message. I know it's going to help so many people. Go and get a copy of a book, Choose Possibility. It's out 17th of August, but go and get, pre-order it, do whatever you need to do to help support Sukinda and a message. But thank you so much, Sukinda, for coming on the Storybox podcast and sharing your stories. Thank you for having me. I really don't like this part because it means that sadly we have come to an end of yet another story. I just want to say thank you to all of you for tuning in and listening to our guest today. It is my prayer that you would have felt inspired, motivated, challenged in some way, and that you would have learned something new as well. If you would like to hear more amazing stories like this one, you can do so now by searching up the story box on all podcast platforms. It is that easy. And if you did get something from today's guest, please do share it around with your friend or family member who you feel could benefit from hearing today's story. And before you go, I greatly appreciate it if you could spend 30 seconds leaving a rating review over on Apple Podcasts. It goes a long way to reaching more people and building this community of the Storybox. Let's start changing lives through powerful stories like this one you heard today. Your support is always greatly appreciated. Until next time when we dive back into the Storybox, I'm Jay Phantom, and don't forget, your story is worth more than you know. I'll catch you then. Hold up. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.